Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for our chance to meditate on the life we have in your son. And we'd ask that this passage this morning will point some things out, Lord. In your son's name, amen. Because you can tell we're in Ephesians 4, riding over into Ephesians 5. And um, this, let me tell you how this transpired. Uh, I received a, receiving kind of Bible questions online from a friend. Uh, and this last week, this friend uh, asked me about Ephesians 1. As you know, you, the, here at All Souls, at least the pastor isn't reformed. It, and I apologize. So consequently, I do get questions about that end of things. And Ephesians 1, like Romans 9, is one of the popular passages. So my mind was on the passage in Ephesians 1. And I was typing up the answer to send off into, the, into that realm. And then I did the wedding yesterday. And the wedding yesterday I did, I was in charge of all of the hoorah, the sermon, uh, the, what's they call vows and liturgy. Because I'm the right person to pick for liturgy. And the homily was given by Toby Sumter, who's pastor of, uh, at Christ Church. And uh, the couple getting married, Robert and Karen, had asked Toby to preach the gospel. There's a lot of non-Christians there. Good opportunity. Toby did a good job. Uh, his text was Ephesians 1. So here I am on one hand getting a question from someplace so about, okay, Ephesians 1, what do you do? And I'm typing that up, and then I'm standing quietly, not making a response, listening to Ephesians 1 from someone who holds a different view than I hold. So it was natural that I would this morning, lying afloat in my tub, be thinking about Ephesians 1. Got out, got dressed, went to the back porch, nice cold weather, sat there with my cup of coffee and looked at Ephesians 1. Now, one of the things about theologically driven passages, with the passage, let me, let's, be, let's be clear. So often, the theologically driven passages are not theologically driven. Not that they don't have a theology, but they're not driven that way. Not, they're not in the Bible to answer that question. So sometimes it's good to be reading through a passage, regardless of what your theology is. You could be reformed or not, and and hold that view, say, of Ephesians 1, and still find what we're looking at this morning. Because as I read through it, my instead of saying, okay, what would I say to that, I said, no, this is something entirely different. One of the things that is interesting about Ephesians 1 is the change in a person uh, pronouns uh, at the end of the passage. Throughout the first part of Ephesians 1, and I only have snippets with ellipses here in the first part of the uh, left-hand side of your sermon notes, um, Christians often think because it is 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it is natural to read that to be to us and about us, because it says us, right? We, and you can't see any reason why you wouldn't be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, don't, first off, first lesson of theological avoidance, do not focus on the word chose. Focus on the word holy, maybe even blameless. <laughs> People focus too much on being chose or not being chose, and, uh, and don't focus on holy. But what's interesting about this passage, whichever view you take, in verse, oh, 12, it says, we who first hoped in Christ have been destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. And then verse 13 says, in him you also. He hasn't been talking about us as Christians. He's been talking about us as whatever group he's writing from. And then he says something else about who he's writing to, the Ephesians. In him you also who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So it makes a set of claims, good claims about whoever is writing the letter, and then it switches to the Paul's hopes for the people he's writing to. So it came to my mind regarding this, is I went back and I looked at the confidence that Paul has about what God has for him, whoever the us is, okay? We could say, we who first hoped in Christ. That's how he wraps it up, right? Verse 12, we who first hoped in Christ have been destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. So whoever you want that, you, that to become. But it brand, it, what it brought up to me to think along a different axis of Paul's concern in the book of Ephesians, rather than answering a theology problem and then fighting back if the answer isn't what you like, he is concerned with how to take what Christ has given him, okay? Christ has given him and maybe the other apostles and others of that standing, the first, those first hoping in Christ, They've been given holy and blamelessness that would live according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Um, his, his riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, he's made known to us. You begin to get the idea that he's not talking about everybody when he gets to verse 9. For he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now, the basic problem that you probably will run into as a fellow believer of others, someone who is trying to support the ministry and however you have conversations with people, as a parent, as a husband, guiding others, perhaps teaching Bible study situations, there's a huge crisis of the inability to guarantee the, communion, or the communication of what you're trying to say. What Paul had 
and the us had in this, in the first part of Ephesians. He is hoping to grant to the people who are hearing it. The dilemma we're facing is passing on the faith and the holiness. Because, boy, howdy. Like uh, Drew read that the church today is not much further along than the church in the first century, maybe even worse off, but we make a lot of the same mistakes. <coughs> what do you think Paul is trying to accomplish is what we have, have in Christ, we'd like to pass on to you who have heard the word of truth, how are we going to do that? That's more of his question if you want to say theologically, his, his question theologically is not whether the mechanism is or is not decreed. The theology is, how do we get you to the righteousness of Christ? How do we get you to what we have enjoyed? And sometimes you wonder the same thing as you've come up through the ranks of the believers and you know some godly person out there that you admire or you read a lot of their books or whatever it is, and you'll want to know, how do I get from here to there? And you're hoping they're going to write a book about how you get from here to there. In the first century, it was a brand new uh, allotment of grace. It wasn't Judaism. Matter of fact, in the second chapter of Ephesians, he is making a new man, one new man in the place of two. The great mystery hidden for ages was that God, Christ, died for the Gentiles, that salvation by faith was there, election was there for the Gentiles. It was a, Christianity was a weird new thing. It was like Scientology for the first century. Okay? Weird. You can't imagine, maybe you could, being a Jew and hearing the claims about Jesus Christ from a Christian. You can't imagine being a Roman and hearing the claims. And they believed that gods would show up. It was weird. And it was claiming a vastly different approach to the righteousness and the holiness that our religion calls us to than what normally happens. Because what normally happens? If you're a pastor walking in the light, you've got a group of Christians who come and listen to you talk, and you're trying to get them to quit Lying, cheating, stealing, what else would they be doing? Chasing bad women? Cussing? How do you get them to stop? Well, pretty obvious. I mean, every religion in history had got them to stop or tried to get them to stop this way. Tell them to stop. Punish them if they don't. Tell them to stop. It's the rules. You don't cuss around here. You don't lie around here. We don't allow lying. 
in this church. That's not exactly true. Because this crisis of figuring out how the message of righteousness moves from St. Paul to the Ephesians, what does he do to get the Ephesians to do what he says? He's not just listing things for them to accomplish. Some people approach. We're in a chapter 4, end of chapter 4 and into 5, in which an awful lot of things exist that you could be jotting down very hastily a list of accomplishments you're going to have to go do. Verse uh, 25 of Ephesians 4, right there at the top. Therefore, putting away falsehood, let us, everyone speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may be able to give to those in need. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for edifying, as fits the occasion, that it may impart grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, here's the thing. If you don't have in your mind the question out of Ephesians 1 where Paul's going, this is what we have, every riches of the heavenly places given to us, we who first believed, we are the representatives of this faith that had this holiness and this righteousness from God. How are we going to express that to you who believe in Ephesus so that you would get there too? Are we just going to, you know, the tablets of St. Paul instead of the tablets of Moses? And some people, what I just read, sounded to you like tablets of rules. Don't lie. Don't get angry. Uh, what else? Don't be a thief. Um, don't, whatever kind of bad talk it is, don't do it. Don't be bitter, wrathful, just don't. And a lot of people come to you pastors today for counseling about these problems. And most of them, we hope, get that right when they say, well, confess it. That's one. You confess your sins to God. And he forgives you. Well, that gets you forgiven. But it doesn't take an angry man and make him less angry. It makes him forgiven for his anger. It doesn't take a bitter woman and make her not a bitter woman. It makes her forgiven for her bitterness. We're wanting to know how to get at holiness, how to get at righteousness, how to get at the will of God in our lives. Because Paul had it. Whoever the we who first hoped, Paul had that from God. It was what Christianity had walked into the world with and said, because no one has ever been good around here, this is where goodness lives, Christianity. And we've sort of bastardized it into another set of rules with Christian names on it. But as I read through that passage, the praise of his glory Right? Is that was it, it's back in verse uh, 14 of chapter 1. We're living to the praise of his glory. 
That's what Paul wants in his life. That's what Paul wants in the Ephesians' life. And he is describing the Christian life. And actually, because we're thinking lawfully, we want to just recraft it into a rule that says don't lie. Putting away falsehood. Well, we'll just call it don't lie. If the portions I have bolded up there, because those of you who have a problem with lying, maybe, maybe some of you, I have known people, it, it's, a, it's weird. People who lie, I don't know what's wrong with their head, but they do it psychologically. I mean, it's a, it's a need. And some of you have been thieves. Some of you have been angry. That's a good Christian sin right there. You could be angry and make it look like righteousness all day long. Because it's so just. It's so right. But Paul is not offering you a list of rules to do because that's not how the passage this morning out of Timothy. Law is good if used lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not written for the righteous, but for the ungodly. It's not written for Christian living. We don't get at righteousness through any law. But we want to get at this godliness through something. But look at what's bolded. For we are members of one another, give no opportunity to the devil, so that he may be able to give to those in need, that it may impart grace to those who hear, as God in Christ forgave you. People have been struggling over defining and analyzing the sinfulness of their own heart for a long time and trying to figure out a way to really understand what it is to be angry, So, which is fine to do. I think it's a good philosophic exercise, but as if they was going to stop them. <coughs> but what Paul is trying to tell you in Ephesus those of you who want to be living to the praise of his glory, is that he appeals to you on the basis of the reason you would be such. There's a reason. Because you are members of one another. If you don't know that, you won't stop lying. How many marriages go sideways? because two people think they're just in a relationship where they've negotiated a certain contractual set of agreements. You get yours, I get mine. We are other people from each other. They don't consider themselves members of one another. And as soon as you start to consider someone, no one hurts his own flesh, it says. A little later in this chapter, isn't it? A little. Yeah, later in chapter 5. Because of membership. Why, why would I lie to somebody? Think about this. You're standing in the kitchen. Red hot stove. Red hot. And you tell your hand, I want you to... No, it's not hot. Why don't you just rest it on that glowing orange disc? It's not hot. Because that's what a lie is. I am telling my... Well, why wouldn't I do that? Because my hand is my member. It's connected. 
And if I were to lie to my hand, I'd be sorry. So Paul is telling us not just, we all know what's wrong. We didn't need to tell you not to lie to people or not to be angry or not to steal things. We all know what the ethics are. The Christianity didn't invent any new morality. It's our approach. He wants to move what his experience is in the grace of God through the love of God and the Holy Spirit that he's had. We who first believed, this is the holiness, this is the praise of his glory. To get you to hear it, he gives you a reason at the end of each moral description. And I've said this before in church that these moral imperatives that are mentioned, they are descriptions of what righteousness looks like. The change in you is at the end of the verse, for we are members of one another because we don't want to give an opportunity to the devil. My father wrote a post this last week about Christians who don't want to fall off the cliff into sin, but sure like standing at the top for the view. Okay, that's the, everyone likes to be looking at it. Oh, hey, looks pretty fine. I, I'll just get a little closer, get a better picture on my phone of a life of abject debauchery, but, and then you find yourself plummeting into it. You gave opportunity to the devil. You weren't actually concerned. Your anger, I could be in a discussion, I've been in a lot of discussions with people about anger. And it's here, it says, be angry but do not sin. And that's a popular passage for angry people. But it says there, you can be angry and not sin. Yeah, but not you. Yeah, it can be done, but not by you. Because what? You're, you're a complete bastard. That's why. Because you don't care about giving an opportunity to the devil. You are so busy justifying what nonsense you're up to is that you've carved a few acres of you know, pasture land for sin in your life. Because you don't care about giving an opportunity to the devil. And someone who's a thief... It's not merely for the counseling benefit of the church eldership that as a guy comes in and says, you know, Pastor, I've been ripping every store in town off. And it's not just the business of the pastor and the guy, once he's confessed, to collect all the goods or figure out how much he owes and add 20% for restitution. All things are fine. They go ahead. He really needs to make it right. He's been a thief. We one time wealthy woman here in town, wealthy, shoplifting all the time. She could, she could buy anything she wanted, just kept stealing. It wasn't because she was in need. Who knows what it was? I didn't know her that closely. But it says here, so that he may be able to give to those in need. It's so easy to get caught up in a rule, don't steal, than saying, how can I get to the point in my heart, my life, where I want to give to those in need? How can I get to that point where I don't want to give, I just don't want to give opportunities to the devil, or I'm a member of other people in this body? Why would I? 
And you won't find that you then, you won't even think of lying. You won't think of anger. You won't think of theft. Because you think of those in need. And if you're thinking about how I'm going to impart grace to those that hear me talk, I'm not going to occupy myself with what are it, evil talk as fits the occasion. I don't know, I'm cussing all the time. Well, it's because you don't think about imparting grace to those who hear you. Paul is laboring under this task of how do I take the righteousness of Christ that an apostle has and give it to the Ephesians. It's not just, here's the rules, there's the grace, do your best. There at the end of the chapter in verse 32, a key thing, as God in Christ forgave you. How much sin in the body of Christ is there? Because Christians on one hand, you probably read the parable, the guy of the unrighteous servant who is forgiven the great debt and then won't forgive his fellow servant who owes him 25 cents, throws him into jail. When you don't understand grace, when you haven't looked at what Christ did for you, you got all sorts of blank checks written for your bitterness, your wrath, your anger, your clamor, your slander, and malice. And you won't be thinking of kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. But if I have the view that my God in Christ died for me to forgive me, if I've measured that in some way, the automatics are there. This is the way... You know, the, the human condition is always self-defense, self-justifying, self-advancing, and we're at war with God who wants us to do his will. And that's why it says, going into chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. That's what godliness is, the imitation of God. As Christ loved us, walk in love as Christ loved us. Because it comes right off of that, you know, forgive one another because God in Christ forgave you. Don't be bitter because God in Christ forgave you. Don't be wrathful. Don't be angry. What's, what's wrong with you? It's because you have never stopped to think that God in Christ forgave you. And when you walk in love, it's the imitation of God because he says, as Christ. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But fornication and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is fitting among saints, that there be no filthiness nor silly talk nor levity, which are not fitting, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, I want you to look at that because you wondered when the sexy stuff was going to start, right, because it was lying anger, theft, and really, should these things, I want you to concentrate on that word. It's bolded for your benefit. 
as is fitting. It should not be even named as is fitting. And if your language is reflection of that filthiness, it's not fitting. What, what, what do you mean? You aren't, can't you just say, I can't do that? I can't chase the ladies? I can't be sexually immoral? I can't even talk about sexual immorality? Well, the rule keeper would be happy to have it be a good one. They can complain their self-righteousness, play the self-righteousness. And, and, but, but the whole approach to holiness is so different than rule keeping. We're talking about a fit here. It isn't fit for this because this is a description of the Christian life. And you have to ask yourself, do I fit it? Does, this, does the Christian life and what I perceive and what I do and what I think fit what the apostles of Jesus Christ have declared? If I don't find them matching, I have to concern where the fit is coming from. You can't just go, okay, I'll do what you say so it looks like I'm a Christian. No, because you won't be that either. You'll just be, you know, insincere. He wants something to occur in your mind that has the phenomena of changing how you live. Just like your faith in Jesus Christ has a certain response. Just like you've heard me go on for years probably about how order produces peace. I don't have to think about the peace. I just have to produce the order. I don't have to think about not lying. I just have to produce a mind conscious of, of my membership with you. If I'm meditating on the membership, if I'm figuring out, yes, we are members, that's why we get together and have the Lord's Supper, that we discern the body. We discern the body, and we have that membership one with another, so we hopefully deal with each other truthfully. And the problem with the liar is not that he lied, but you realize that what was missing is his agreement about what our relationship is. He didn't agree that we were members of one another. He doesn't agree that God and Christ forgave you. When it tells you to walk in love, this, uh, we're looking for, here in the end of Ephesians 4 through 5 before it gets to that you know, family stuff. Uh, for the guidance that Paul has introduced this book for, the, the, the book is, hey, We've got this great thing. God is making a new, chapter 2 says, one new man in the place of two, so making peace. The, the Christian is a different kind of person. So he goes through the theological elements in it in the first three chapters. And here, in the, like a lot of his books, he ends with a lot of practical description. So we're trying to look at that and going, okay, I need to be seeing, do I hear the teaching of the apostles' righteousness? in this. What is the nature of it? Is he trying to give me a rule? Or is he trying to describe what's going to happen to me if I remember that God and Christ forgave me? He says to walk in love. Certain things you won't do is fitting not that you not do and other things you won't do because it's not fitting. It says instead, verse uh, 4, and 4, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, if as you 
as you meditate on membership, opportunities of the devil, giving to others, imparting grace to other people, those are subtextual frameworks of mind that have their effect in your moral behavior, where your righteousness becomes, as my father says, super easy. Here, the love is your, you know this from other passages of the scripture, for love fulfills the law. No man wrongs his neighbor if he loves his neighbor as himself. We know that, that's central to the new covenant. But here's an interesting com combination. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is um, love is is something that is moving in the now into the into tomorrow into the future. It's how we move toward another. Thanksgiving is a recollection of what has been. So if you're if your Christian memory should be thankful and Christian's future anticipation should be love. Be sure of this, verse 5, that no fornicator or impure man or one who is covetous, that is, an idolater. Okay, that's the ones he listed in verse 3. But fornication and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. So he brings in that passage, I think a couple weeks ago I we was talking about idolatry and and, and uh, this is one of the passages I was referring to. Has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God? Now, we know that your salvation is not due to works righteousness. You cannot work your way. Paul, it's not because of works. And here he suggests that they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ, kingdom of Christ and of God, that, that this, this is how you know that it is not a list of how-tos and what you must do to be saved. It is a description of someone who's going to heaven. You can be sure that anybody who lives like this, is not, you're not describing someone going to heaven. It's, Paul is strong in Ephesians 2, you know. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is on the previous page. Not of works, not of your doing. It's the gift of God. He knows perfectly well. He's not going to tell you that if you're a fornicator, an impure man, or covetous, which is an idolater, if you keep doing those things, you are not going to heaven because that's how you get to go to heaven, is by avoiding those things. No, this is about description. You can be sure. You be sure of this. Let no one deceive you with empty words. He reiterates, you can be sure that that person isn't going to heaven. Because that's what Christianity looks like. Not how Christianity is gained. And let no one deceive you with empty words, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is why the world is going to get punished eternally. Because of that kind of behavior. <coughs> we know that the Christian life is moving towards holiness and righteousness. But we know it has to be a response to the way the apostles taught you to get at it. The apostles taught you that the new thing that was Christ is the Holy Spirit moving in you to replace the old nature, to kill off the old man that was serving his own body with his lusts. 
Therefore, do not associate with them. For once you were darkness, and now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, the whole approach to this is so different than what a lot of churches do. And I want to re reiterate that. But think about what he points you to to fix you. I've said this in the last few years. It stuck out at me a number of years ago that in Corinthians 6, when he talks about all things are lawful but not all things are helpful, and then he gets into a discussion about not visiting prostitutes. You thought that would be a done deal. You thought there'd be a rule. Okay, just at the outset, no prostitutes. You can't be one, you can't visit them. Simple, right? Right? Let's have a, put it out there on the bulletin board. Because that's what we think we're dealing with. He says, no, how, could, how, how can you? You who are members of Christ, you become members of that woman. Because we understand what it is that has happened in us, not what the rules are for looking like we're Christians. We want to understand our membership with Christ. We want to understand our membership with one another. We don't do those things not because they're against the rules and we really want to do them. We do it because we have been changed as to what nature and what we hold, how we value, how we look out our eyes at the world. In membership, caring, looking out for the needs of others. We're supposed to try to please, learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We're, we're trying to say, well, this is my God who died for me. Once I look back at that verse, it says, as God in Christ forgave you, I go, yeah. I, you know, once I figure that out, once I go, I didn't just pray the prayer, I didn't just walk the aisle, I didn't sign the card with very little thought as to what it took. If you did, you might want to go back and have a little more thought about what it took for God to please to, to forgive you. Because as soon as you become aware of that, one, the thanksgiving is huge, the love is huge. God has turned towards you. We love because he first loved us. We're in an experience of a new frame of mind. The Holy Spirit has come into your life to counsel your old spirit into thinking like a Christian. Try to prove what the will of the Lord is. Try to learn what the, is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, this is an interesting passage, and I want you to carry it into this, uh, what we've been talking about. For it is a shame even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Yeah. Some of that excitement that people have is because they give opportunity to the devil. They like to talk about the sins of the world. But Paul is not saying don't talk about it. It's a shame you have to. You're supposed to expose it, right? It says expose the unfruitful works of darkness, for it is a shame to even speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, and anything that becomes visible is light. It says this whole approach you're beginning to understand sin, okay? It used to be you didn't have to understand it. You just wanted to do it, right? 
Your urge said, I want, and you said, okay. And here you are in your middle age, trying to get counseling about your little problem, whatever your little problem is. I just don't understand why I do it. The exposure to the light. It's a shame you have to talk about it. But you know, when you talk about it, you can get to the bottom of what it is that's going on, and it's not merely because you're a fornicating, lying son of a whatnot. Therefore it is said, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Now, I, when he gets to this point, this is back in the first chapter, part of the verses I quoted. Um, uh, uh, verse 15 of chapter 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe according to the working of his great might, which he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places. He just basically told you what he had in the, the first believers, trying to pass on to the Ephesians. So this is what he was praying up. Uh, uh, praying for, that they would understand the life, and their understanding of the life would have automatics of righteousness. It would be enlightened. They would understand, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, how you walk with the lights on, making the most of the time because the deeds are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And not understand what the rules are, because then just efforts are made to hide when you break the rules. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Look, it's not, Christian living is not just don't get drunk. People think, well, what? says, don't be drunk with wine. The rest of the verse. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And understand what being drunk is. It's debauchery. For heaven's sake, who would, you know, I, I've never been drunk. <coughs> Not because of, you know, piety or anything like that, but I worked with drunks in a ministry uh, late high school. And my heavens, what an awful time they have. It's great watching drunks from the outside. They think while they're drunk, they're having a great time. They're not. And they're having a worse time after that. I've never wanted to be because I saw just, I saw one portion of this verse for that is debauchery. What a, what a complete waste of humanity. And as soon as we begin to think, as God has thought, as soon as you say, I'm going to expose the works of darkness to the light so that it becomes light. So that what, it, what I'm about, membership, thanksgiving, love, 
all those things inform the mind that wants to go out and sin, that really that's not the description of somebody who's loving and a member and cares for the needs of others, imparts grace, is thankful. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Always and for everything, giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. It's simple to say that somebody who would otherwise go get through a whole case of Keystone in an evening by themselves, when we have to talk about quality of beer, two quantities, just solving, you know, don't you have a dim view of debauchery? And two, filled with the Holy Spirit. If I was thinking about whether or not I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, if I am thanking God always and for everything, when my heart is there, when I've figured out the love of God and thanksgiving and the Lord's sacrifice, I don't need to medicate, and I can't help but sing. Now, you might not be very good at singing. Okay, sing along, please. You can sing quietly at church, but get into the shower and just let it rip. Get a hymn book. Order one from Christian Book Distributors, 1099 for one of these great hymns of the faith. As I've told you this before, I asked my dad what his walk was based on. He said singing hymns. And it's not because he was in a religious service and worshiping. He was saying great things about God. Saying great things about God for everything and giving thanks to God. If you have your measure saying, I am not after stopping my sin, I'm after taking on the mind of God in Christ. Because Paul wants me to understand that I'm a member of one another. He wants me to understand that I'm just giving opportunity to the devil. Look at the things that are the mindset of the broken person. Don't try to stop the sin. Stop the kind of person you are. Or change, change what you think about. And you would have every reason to think. I think a big change in my life after having watched it happen in my father's when I was in the Navy and I'd go take my hymn book, I had a little intervarsity hardback hymn book and I'd leave the barracks and I'd walk across the street to a phone booth and I'd sing in the phone booth for maybe an hour, hour and a half. I'm sure I got reported. I'm not that great a singer. Stay on pitch. I recommend it. Get yourself a hymn book. And not because... Oh, they say in this church you got to sing hymns? Okay, all right. A little, a little bossy. Now, thank God. Think about what you're thanking him for. For what? Always and for everything. Let's thank him. Dear Lord, thank you very much. You've been very good to us. We'd ask that it would influence our pursuit of you, the description of the righteous life that we have in your son, would come to pass in us because we have taken on the mind of the apostles. In your son's name we pray. Amen.